I don't think there's any doubt that one of the greatest plagues on the modern day church, the modern day evangelical church, is the refusal, and I use that word intentionally, refusal of pastors and leaders to preach on sin. Whether it's because of a fear of offending, a fear of sounding harsh, a fear of sounding unloving, a fear of losing church members, a fear of losing big givers, a fear of sounding a bit too behind the times, a fear of being perceived as sounding anti-scientific, a fear of being labeled with that fundamentalist tag, a lack of belief in the clarity and the authority of scripture, a lack of understanding of the gospel message itself, and perhaps in some cases, a very lack of salvation. There is, sadly, in our day, a statistically provable sense of reluctance, even bashfulness, on the part of pastors and church leaders and of evangelical churches today to preach against sin. This includes the failure to affirm the existence of sin, to acknowledge the reality of sin, to call sin, sin, to warn against the perils and the dangers of sin, and to call on church members to repent of their sin. And this is tragic, not only because this failure to preach on sin means that an incomplete gospel message is being proclaimed, but this failure to preach on sin reveals this total lack of concern or acknowledgement of Christ's lordship and his call on believers to pursue upright and holy lives. And this failure to preach on sin reveals this lack of belief in the authority and the clarity and the power and the sufficiency of God's very word. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 5 through 7 today. And if you haven't been able to detect this already, today's sermon is going to be a sermon on sin. I'll be preaching on sin this morning, not because it's my own personal favorite topic to preach on. Not be preaching on sin because I I think it's going to tickle anybody's ears. I'm not going to preach on sin because I think it's going to make us all feel warm and fuzzy going into the Thanksgiving holiday. Rather, I'm going to preach on sin because God's word compels me to do so. As Charles Spurgeon once put it, the church does not determine what the Bible teaches. The Bible determines what the church teaches. Let's let the Bible instruct us. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 7. God's word reads, Therefore... Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. The title of this morning's message is Sin's Death March. And as you're going to hear me explain this morning, this passage that we'll be in this morning is very much focused on the mortification of sin, the killing of sin, the putting to death of sin. Admittedly, not a very popular message in our times, in the days in which we live of live and let live and love is love and you do you, but a true message and an important message and a needed message for churches everywhere and for Christians everywhere of all generations and all times. Now, by way of review, we're now officially into that section of Paul's letter to the Colossians in which Paul, we said this last week, is now moving from making primarily indicative statements. 
here's who you are and here's who Christ is and, and here's who these false teachers are to now making primarily imperatival statements. And that's just a fancy way of saying commands. I mentioned last week as we worked through verses one through four that those four verses represent this transitionary portion of Colossians. They have this mix of both indicative and imperative statements. You have been raised up with Christ, verse one. That's an indicative. Set your mind on things above. That's an imperative. You have died. That's an indicative. Now, though, starting in verses 5 through 7 and carrying over into verses 8 and beyond, the commands are going to start coming quickly. As theology dispensed starts becoming quickly, theology applied. Last week, it was, you have died. That's theology dispensed. Theology about that, that the believer's union with Christ and his death and resurrection. This week, though, you see that statement at the beginning of verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. That's theology applied. And the lesson in theology applied that Paul is going to be giving us here this morning is all about the importance of putting sin to death. Putting to death the sin which still clings in the life of every believer. As we're about to see, Paul is saying here, positionally, the old man is already dead. He's a dead man walking. So now practically, it's time to carry out the death sentence. To plunge the knife deep. For sin to walk the plank. For it to go finally on its death march. We have three points this morning which obviously are alliterated. Verse 5, we're going to see the command. Verse 6, we're going to see the consequence. And verse 7, we're going to see the contrast. We'll flesh out what those each mean as we get to each one. But verse 5 is the command. Verse 6 is the consequence. Verse 7 is the contrast. Let's start in verse 5. With the command. And just so you know, if you're a note taker, you want to reserve most of your space on your note sheet for verse 5. We'll be spending most of our time here this morning. Colossians 3 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. As he did in that section of Colossians that we covered last week, Paul, you see here, starts with that word, therefore. And as we've done our study of this letter, whenever we've seen that word, therefore, we've noted that Paul is building on what he's said prior or earlier. Like in Colossians 2, 6, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Or over in verse 16 of Colossians 2, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. Verse 1 of chapter 3, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. And then this morning, verse 5 Chapter 3, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. This is transitional language. Paul has just described in the preceding verses that that death to life process that the Colossians had undergone. He's just described how those believers in Colossae, the once spiritually dead renegades, had now found their very life in Christ. They had been raised up, Colossians 3.1, with Christ. And now in verse 5, he uses this word, therefore, as a way to spur them on further in their behavior. As he commands them to bring their conduct into conformity with their exalted position in Christ. They had already died, spiritually speaking. The old man was dead, spiritually speaking. But now they needed to become dead, practically speaking. As they put to death the sin which remained. 
And that really leads us to the heart of this passage and and this central command that we see given here in verse 5, where Paul says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Now, when we see that language, consider, we might be tempted to think initially that this is a matter of the intellect, that this is a matter of mental fortitude. This is all about what's happening upstairs. All I need to do is consider, intellectually affirm, the members of my earthly body is dead, and then I'm good. I can go on living as I please. And you can see how someone might read it that way if they take that word consider and they only view it as intellectual. Because in English, that word consider does have a connotation like that. To consider is to count. It's to reckon. It's some accounting that's taking place mentally. I think of the, the, the mental abacus as the beads are on one side of your mind and they slide to the other side of your mind as you're thinking about whatever's being thought about. You're accounting for whatever needs to be accounted for. You're reckoning with whatever needs to be reckoned with, with whatever proposition has been put before you. It would be that sense of consider, mental consideration that we see in places like James 1, 2, where he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Or, or Philippians 3, 7, where Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted, considered as loss for the sake of Christ. Or in Philippians 3, 8, Paul says, more than that, I count, consider, same word, all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value or wealth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So there are instances where consideration or to consider has this intellectual component to it. But here in Colossians, Colossians 3, 5, when Paul says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, is he referring to, to mental calculation or some sort of internal computation of these truths about who you once were and who you are now in Christ? No. Instead, the force of the word that Paul uses here in verse 5 is much, much stronger. The word he uses there is not the word that we see elsewhere where we see count or compute, legizomai. It's actually just one word that represents these eight words you see in your NAS translation, if that's what you have here this morning, where it says, consider the members of your earthly body is dead. That's one word in Greek, and that one word is necrosate. Necrosate, necro, um, necrophobia is a fear of dying. Necros, necro has to do with death. This is a strong imperative verb when he says, what he says here in verse five. It's a strong imperative verb. It's, it's a direct word of command. The, the tense requires decisive action. It's as though Paul is saying here, mortify it, kill it, eradicate it. And there's urgency to it. He's saying, do it now. In the NAS translation here, you notice that the word dead is toward the end of the verse. But I actually believe that word dead belongs at the front of the verse. So a better rendering of this passage would be something like this. Put to death the members of your earthly bodies. Far from mere intellectual consideration, what Paul is calling for here is immediate action. He's calling on these Colossian believers And God, through his spirit, is calling on each one of us believers here this morning to put to death the members of their earthly bodies. And that brings us to another important threshold that we need to cross and consider here as we think about what Paul is meaning here when he says the members of your earthly body. Let's take those words piece by piece, starting with the words your earthly body. Is Paul referring to 
The physical body here. Does he have the physical body in mind? No, this is figurative language. When Paul speaks of the earthly body, it's a parallel to what he says elsewhere when he refers to the old self, the old man, the old person, who we once were in our old sinful condition, who we once were when we lived lives completely given over to sin, who we once were, as he mentions in Colossians 2.13, when we were in the uncircumcision of our flesh. It is the old self, as Colossians 3.9 puts it, which was marked by various evil practices. It was the old self that Ephesians 4.22 says that we are to lay aside as we come to Christ. And it is the old self, as we see here in Colossians 3.5, that we are to put to death. And note how comprehensive this call to put to death is. Paul here indicates that it takes each of our individual members Each individual body part from our head to our toes needs to be put to death. Now, this reminds us, of course, of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. And it's often debated, what's Christ talking about when he says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of your parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it off from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Was Jesus there referring to the actual amputation of body parts as a means of dealing with sin? No. But he mentioned the individual parts of the body, the right eye, the right hand, as a means of drawing a connection between those individual members of our bodies and their propensity towards sin and their contribution to our sin. That's exactly how we see that word member used here and elsewhere in the New Testament. It refers to, to parts of the human body, various parts of the human body, and how sin lurks in each of them. Like in Romans 7, 5, it says, While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Or James 3, verse 6 says, The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. And James 4, 1 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? So here in Colossians 3, 5, where Paul here says, Put to death the members of your earthly bodies. He isn't referring to physical maiming. He's not referring to self-harm or or to self-mutilation. Rather, he is saying we ought to be putting to death the sins which still clog and control and pollute our hearts. As Christians, we are called to be executionary as it relates to our sin. As we seek to slay our sin and kill our sin and to mortify our sin. Paul is saying here, in other words... As we saw back in Colossians 3.1, since your minds are now set on the things that are above, you are to be putting to death the earthly members that are still here with you in the flesh. Our, our faith, in other words, is never meant to be residing exclusively at, at some intellectual level. Rather, our faith eventually ought to lead to what we see described here in verse 5, which is a, a living a life committed to mortification, Living a life that's consistent with calling yourself a new creature in Christ. Living a life that is full of conscious effort to slay the remaining sin in our flesh. To be putting sin to death. 
And now, as we read on in verse five, we are given this list of five specific sins which Paul zeroes in on in this passage. Let's read the verse again. It says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, and then here he goes, to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. That list of of sins that we see there resembles closely similar lists that Paul gives in his other writings. In fact, why don't we go ahead and take a quick tour of some of those. Let's start over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Flip over a few books to 1 Corinthians 6, where we're going to see Paul laying out similar lists of vices and sins. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Flip over a couple of books to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to do just kind of a quick jet tour of these so you see how this is constantly at the forefront of Paul's mind as the spirit moves him to write these words. Galatians 5, these are the deeds of the flesh that mark the life of the unbeliever. Galatians 5.19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. One more, Ephesians chapter 5, one more book over. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 3. Look at the, the links between these and the preceding verses and the ones that we just will, will see in Colossians 3, 5. But immorality, this is Ephesians 5, 3, or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then there's our text. Back to Colossians. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. I said many, many months ago, but my Greek professor back at Masters used to always say to us, repetition is the key to learning, and the key to learning is what? Repetition. That's what Paul is doing here, taking us through these lists of sins that pervade the life of the unbeliever and which really should not have any trace, or not we as believers should not be marked by in any sense. So we have a long list to get through here in Colossians 3. Let's jump right in. First, you see this, this first one he lists is immorality. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. Now, now as we encounter that word with our English-speaking brains and our English-speaking tongue, our minds might want to go broad and wide to anything historically the church, the culture, or even we personally have ever found to be morally wrong or morally repugnant or morally obnoxious, like skirt lengths or women wearing pants or restaurants that stay open on Sundays or people who smoke cigarettes or people who buy lottery tickets. But that's not the type of morality or immorality that Paul is referring to here. In fact, it would be quite bizarre for Paul, having just gone after the false teachers for laying down this expansive, extra-biblical morality code, 
of self-made religion, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, to suddenly go into doing the very same thing to the Colossians here in Colossians 3. So we know that's not what he's after. He's not after broad, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do type of immorality. We also know from the grammar here that it's very clear that he's going after sexual immorality. The word he uses here is porneia. And you know what word comes from that word porneia. It refers to illicit sexual activity, meaning any act of sexual intercourse or contact that occurs outside the safety and the protection and the beauty of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman as God has designed. Oh, and by the way, that's how God has designed it. Genesis 2.24, God designed that a man would leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two should become one flesh. And then as you get into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7 says that it's because of immoralities, porneos, the word there, that each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. And then you get down one more verse to 1 Corinthians 7, 3, and it says the husband must fulfill his duty, sexual duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. And then 1 Corinthians 7, 4, the feminists hate this one, it says, but the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. They need to read a little further, though, because right down the page it says, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Then you get to 1 Corinthians 7, 5. And it says, stop depriving one another, husbands, wives, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So summary time, God brings man and woman together as husband and wife. And unless a husband and wife have a very specific agreement because they want to concentrate their, their focus, their energies, their labors on prayer, they are to come together sexually with some degree of regularity. That's the framework. That's the ideal. That's the norm. Now, getting back to Colossians 3, 5, Paul here is saying any form of sexual activity outside the confines of what God has detailed and prescribed for husbands and wives in marriage is porneia. It's immorality. And it is to be put to death. Now, I understand that an entirely different narrative is being spun and marketed by the world in which we live today. I understand that we live in a time in which cohabitation, playing house, playing dress up is is becoming the norm as people are increasingly bypassing marriage for the conveniences of, of shacking up. People are adopting the whole why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free idea. I understand that we live in a time in which compatibility, specifically sexual compatibility, is viewed as an essential part of the the interview process as you select a mate. The thought process goes, well, I wouldn't buy a car before I test drove it, so why would I pursue this marriage relationship until I've test driven, so to speak, sexually how we're compatible? And I don't even have time to get into how the, the very words husband and wife are considered increasingly in certain circles today to be hate speech because they reflect antiquated notions of these old, outdated gender norms. How can you call somebody a husband and how can you call somebody a wife if you don't even know if they're a male or a female to begin with? This all comes down to authority, doesn't it? It comes down to authority. The question boils down to, am I, are you, are we 
going to take what has ever been embraced societally or whatever has been voted on politically as being our guide to determine what is right and what is wrong, or instead are we going to take God at his word and follow what he has laid out for us in scripture? Because the fact is, and there is no getting around this, what he has said on these matters that I've just rattled on about, what he has said, he has said with absolute clarity. Galatians 5.19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, pornea, impurity, sensuality. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, pornea. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then here, Colossians 3, 5. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead, to immorality. That's only the first item on the list. Next is impurity. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to impurity. Now that word impurity is broader than the word immorality. But the two are still related. Where immorality refers to the, the physical side of illicit sexual activity. Impurity refers to those inner thoughts and, and inner feelings which ultimately may lead to a physical act of immorality. So you could think of it this way. Immorality refers to sinful outward acts, whereas impurity refers to those inward motivations for those external acts. And we see Paul continually refer to these two terms together. Again, Galatians 5.19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity. So he links them together. Or Ephesians 5.3, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. And of course, we know as we read through the gospel accounts that our Lord Jesus had something to say about this linkage between our external actions and our inward heart motivations, especially and specifically in the realm of sexual activity and temptation. Matthew 5, 28, a familiar passage, I'm sure to many of you, where he says, our Lord says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's that combination of the inward affection and the outward action. Or in Mark 7, chapter 7, verse 21, he's addressing the Pharisees here. And the, the context is food laws and restrictions. But look how broad he goes. He says, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, pornea, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Impurity then is a more far-ranging form of perversion. And that it encompasses not only evil actions, but evil intentions. And it reveals a heart which is given over to perversion. And that's a phrase, by the way, hearts given over to perversion that reflects so well the pornography-flooded culture and world in which we live today. Here's some statistics for you related to the plague of pornography in our day. In 2023, this year, the global re revenues for the porn industry exceeded $100 billion. We're not done with 2023. Just by way of comparison, the National Football League 
has generated revenues of about $12 billion. Netflix has generated revenues of about $31 billion. Pornography is already over $100 billion. $3,075.64 is spent on pornography on the internet every second. There are 28,258 users watching pornography every second. One out of every five mobile searches today is for pornography. You want to talk about a global pandemic? That's some charge language from the last three to four years. You want to talk about a global pandemic? Let's talk about the pandemic of pornography. Let's talk about a pandemic that is wrecking marriages. Let's talk about a a pandemic that is corrupting children as they're given free-range access to whatever screen or device that parents deem fit to give them. Let's talk about a pandemic that is marking a society as having already been given over by God. In fact, turn over with me to Romans chapter 1 for just this picture of what it looks like today to be living in a time, in a culture, in a society that has been given over by God. Romans 1. Romans 1, and we'll start in verse 21. It says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. There's our word. So that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Well, sadly, as is true of many forms of impurity, this pandemic of pornography has, has seeped into the modern day church. According to reports I read this week, 64% of men who call themselves Christians say they watch pornography at least once a month. 15% of Christian women say the same thing. Not only that, one in five youth pastors, one in seven senior pastors say that they view pornography with some degree of regularity. Folks, this is not okay. This is an absolute tragedy. This is alarming that so much impurity is finding its way into the church of Jesus Christ. Christ bought his bride, the church, at the cost of his own blood so that she would be what? Pure. Holy. Go over with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we often go here and we're like, oh, that's about marriage and that's about husbands and wives. Yes, but there is a deeper underlying truth that's being portrayed here in Ephesians 5. Look at Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ desires a holy bride. Christ desires a holy people, not a people that are marked by impurity. Not pastors that are living out there like they're living in the world. But instead, we all, as Christ's sheep, are called to be marked by purity and righteousness and holiness. 
If you want a memory verse for this week, it'd be 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but for sanctification. Now, of course, I understand, and we'll get there at the end of the message. Not one of us is pure or or holy or, or godly in our unregenerate, sinful condition. And not one of us has completely arrived today. But by God's grace and by the power of his spirit, he allows us to be progressively more so. I need to keep moving on. Next on the list, back to Colossians 3, is this one, passion. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to passion. Talk about a word, by the way, that's been hijacked and misused and misapplied to our time. I mean, how many outbursts of anger, sinful outbursts of anger, have been swept under the rug when one party says, I'm sorry, I'm just a real passionate person? Or how many people have just kind of bypassed an idolatrous obsession with sports, filing it under the label of passion? Like Husker football 25 years ago around here. Oh, it's just my passion. Or youth sports and their dominance today. Or fantasy football. I'm just passionate about it. Not my idol. I'm just passionate. How many lusts have been taken to a place where they have crossed over a physical line and specifically a sexual line and they're just sort of dismissed as, well, you know, things just kind of got out of hand. It was just one of those things and it was the heat of the moment. It was passion. Well, that last one, by the way, is pretty close to what Paul has in mind here when he speaks of passion, pathos. That's the word. It refers to this strong, unbridled lust, these misplaced erotic feelings, uncontrolled desires, depraved affections. In this context, especially as it follows immorality and impurity, he's using that word passion to describe one's selfish pursuit of sensual gratification, one's pursuit of deviant sexual behavior, which can be, by the way, either homosexual or heterosexual. In fact, we started over in Romans just a a few minutes ago. Why don't you turn back there to Romans? I want to pick up the rest of what's said there, Romans 1, because we see our word there, passion, come out on that page. Romans 1. We started in verse 21 last time. Let's pick it up in verse 24. Romans 1, 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, here comes our word, God gave them over to degrading passions. And in this context, we're going to see it's homosexuality, but it can certainly apply to heterosexuality as well. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And those inordinate affections, those sinful desires, those unchecked passions for the Christian, they have to be contained. They have to be restrained. They have to be checked. As it says in Colossians 3, 5 here, they have to be put to death. Next, he talks about evil desire. Back to Colossians 3. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to evil desire. Now, to have a desire, uh, to have a want, to have a wish is morally neutral as a starting point. 
It's not inherently wrong. It's not inherently bad or or wicked to to want something. Paul desired to be with Christ, as we know from Philippians 1.23. Paul desired to minister to the Thessalonians face-to-face, he says, in 1 Thessalonians 2.17. The elder who desires, or the elder candidate who aspires to the office of elder, desires a a good work, we know from 1 Timothy 3.1. You can desire to grow in godliness. You can desire to grow in your understanding of God's word. You can desire a frozen popsicle on a hot summer day. You can desire a a warm blanket on a cold winter night. You can desire any of those things and have it not be sinful or be wrong. But it's not just any desire that Paul is calling out here in verse 5. That word there, desire, epithemia, we can see is fronted by this adjective, evil. Paul here is going after evil desires, unholy desires. The type of desires Satan throws out as bait as he fishes in the hearts of discontented men. The type of desires James had in mind when he said this in James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, desire. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So here in verse 5, what's being aimed at is any desire for the wrong things, for illicit cravings. In the context here, as he speaks of desires, Paul is still referring to sexual relations. Relations and desires which we know aren't inherently wicked. We're not the Roman Catholic Church. But we also know that they're desires which have their proper place and a proper channel, namely the marriage bed. And these desires, though natural, they become evil when they're unharnessed or uncontrolled or untethered from God's design to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. All right, last on this list of five is Greed. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to greed. Now, that word greed there, you'll probably see it in some of your translations, can be rendered covetousness. And it has a very simple meaning. It's just a desire to have more. An insatiable desire to gain more. In the context here, it's this unquenchable desire to get more of what has been forbidden. The root idea here is reported on back in the Ten Commandments. Back in Exodus 20, verse 17, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So it has Old Testament roots to it, but we also know that the real root of the problem, as James will point out in his letter, is the sinfulness of the human heart. James 4, 2, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, some have suggested that Paul here might still be referring to sexual appetites because he's got this list of sexual sins, and now suddenly he turns to greed. I actually don't see it that way. I think he goes broader here, and he's talking about an entirely new category of sin here. Greed or covetousness, broadly speaking. He's referring to the broad and ruthless pursuit of having... And wanting more and more things. It's that child who's demanding to know what's for dinner before they've even taken their last bite of lunch. 
It's the person who yesterday was completely content with the car, the house, the boat that they own until the next door neighbor got something new. This is the person that would do well to read from 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. As we read on to the end of verse 5, we note that Paul says that this type of greed or covetousness that's being called out here amounts to what? End of verse 5, idolatry. Greed is not an addiction. You can't go to therapy and have your greed problem solved. Greed certainly starts in the heart, but greed ultimately is not even a heart problem in the chief sense. Greed is a worship problem. Greed is, as it says right here, idolatry. It amounts to idolatry. God is our our ultimate supplier. But the greedy person doesn't see it that way. That they lust after more and more over what God has sovereignly chosen not to give them. The greedy person is willing to move heaven and earth as they passionately pursue their own desires, not God's. The greedy person is seeking ultimate satisfaction in things below, not things that are above. And they experience the most joy, not when they're communing with God in prayer, not when they're hearing from God through his word, but instead when they finally secure the bag, when they finally get that home on the lake, when they finally get that corner office, when they finally go on that dream vacation, then they're sailing. And in all of this, the greedy person shows that their chief end is not to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but instead their chief end is to glory in self while giving God second place. And God doesn't do second place. He never has. We see this in the Old and the New Testaments alike when we see examples of possessions and greed and covetousness pitted against pursuit of God. Like Psalm 52, 7, back in the Old Testament says, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. Or note this connection in the New Testament regarding this connection between idolatry for things and worship of God, or the competition between the two. Hebrews 13 Verse five, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And of course, midway through his sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 24, the Lord infamously says, you cannot serve both God and wealth. Can you be a wealthy Christian? Can you pursue wealth as a Christian? Most certainly you can. But only while heeding what Paul says here in verse 5 of Colossians 3, that you must consider the members of your earthly body as dead to greed, which amounts to idolatry. So there we have it. We have this catalog of sins listed out here by Paul. We have this overarching command to put each one of those sins to death And I've got to say, this is where a number of preachers will sort of put it in park and leave it here. They'll say things like, well, I've given you all the meanings of the words here. I've thrown in some Greek definitions, so stop sinning. Let's pray. Let's go to lunch. As I see it, shepherds are supposed to shepherd. 
We don't just dryly read off facts like we're reading from the phone book. We don't just act as though we're lecturing here in a college classroom and call it a day. No, we tend, we feed, we lead our people. We nudge our people. Occasionally, we wrap our people on the nose with the authority of God's word if we need to. Apparently, we get, uh, uh, every once in a while, we get out the shepherd's crook and give our people a little tug. And I mention all that because what I'm going to do right now is take a pause from the, the exposition of this text and do some practical shepherding right now from this pulpit, okay? I'm going to give you eight ways to be putting your sin to death. A lot of people will leave a place like this and they'll say, great, the pastor told me to put my sin to death. What do I do? I'm going to give you eight ways that you can be thinking about what it looks like to put your sin to death. First, recognize the root of your sin. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a new person. The old has passed away. Behold, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the new has come. You have been buried with Christ in baptism, Colossians 2, 13. You've been raised to newness of life. You've been made alive together with him. But you are still living in a sin-cursed body, in a sin-cursed world, and the temptation to sin is ever-present. And there is this enemy prowling around like a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, 8, who is seeking to take you down. And serving as the control center of your sin-cursed body is your heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. So to put your sin to death is going to involve you recognizing just how deep the roots of your sin sink, namely to the level of your heart. And that's going to involve you committing at that heart level to repent, to turn from your sin. It's not a matter of just dressing up the outside. It's a matter of doing business with God on the inside and committing to living a whole new manner. Second is to submit to Christ's lordship. Each of the sins that we've worked through here in verse five, immorality, impurity, greed, all of them ultimately point to a refusal to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Sadly, there have been multiple generations of of Christians now who have been raised on the jingle that you just need to ask Jesus into your heart and accept him as your personal savior. Take out the, the fire insurance policy without affirming and living out the reality that he is Lord. But what did Jesus himself say to his disciples in Luke 6, 46? He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, not what? Do what I say. You'll never win in the battle against sin unless you acknowledge and submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Commit to doing what he says in the word. Third, embrace the battle. To put sin to death means acknowledging realistically that you have a fight on your hands. Sure, that the follower of Christ is free in Christ. Positionally, we have been liberated from sin. Romans 6.6 6 says our old self was crucified with him. But now, having been freed, we are still slaves. Slaves of Christ. Having been freed, we're still slaves, Romans 6.18, of righteousness. And as slaves of righteousness, we are called to apply every ounce of energy that we have with the Spirit's help, of course, to live holy and godly lives. In 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, Paul speaks about disciplining his body and making it his slave. Does that sound easy to you? Not to me. To put sin to death is not always easy or painless or pleasant, but the reality is there are no off days in the Christian faith. 
to kill sin is a necessity. It's a requirement of living for Christ. Here's number four. Call sin, sin. Your sin is not just a mistake. It's not just a whoopsie. It's not a character flaw. It's not clinical. This is not a medical issue. Your sin is just that. It's sin. And sin at its root is the exact opposite of everything God is in his character. Ralph Venning, one of the old guys, the old dudes from 500 years ago, says this. As God is holy, all holy, only holy, altogether holy, and always holy, so sin is sinful, all sinful, only sinful, altogether sinful, and always sinful. Not only that, sin, as we know from Scripture, is an offense against God. Sin is lawlessness, says 1 John 3, 4. And not only that, every sin that you and I have committed or or will commit contributed to the anguish that our Lord experienced at Calvary. Those truths ought to weigh heavy on us when we're contemplating sin, considering sin, or even coming out of some season of sin that we've been in. Number five, resist the urge to compare. Uh, This one is pretty self-explanatory. Your sin is your sin before a holy God, as is mine. How others have sinned ultimately isn't an out card for you. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card for you. If you're a liar, that someone else is an adulterer doesn't make you any less a liar. You're still a liar if you're a liar. Flavel, John Flavel says, it's easier to declaim against a thousand sins of others than to mortify one sin in ourselves. Six, pray. Matthew 6, 13, the words of our Lord and what we know is the Lord's prayer. It says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, we ask God for help. Cry out to the one you're sinning against. Know that it is only through his power that you'll ever find success in putting sin to death. John Owen, in his classic work, The Mortification of Sin, says this, it is the spirit alone that can mortify sin. He has promised to do it. And all other means without him are empty and vain. A man may easier see without eyes, speak without a tongue, than mortify one sin without the spirit. That means praying for the spirit's help and convicting us and pruning us and conforming us into the image of Christ as we progressively put sin to death. Seven, seek accountability in your Bible studies, in your book studies, in your ladies' coffee meeting, your men's coffee meetings. Are you talking about sin? Are you seeking accountability as you are fighting the sin that you're still battling? Or are you getting bogged down in theological minutiae and never talking about matters of the heart. Another old guy, George Swinnick, rightly says this, the cruel pirate Satan watches for those vessels that sail without a convoy. You need people around you. You need other believers around you who you can share with and and, and you can seek accountability from. Don't run into the rocks by taking your eyes off what truly matters. Eight is this, persevere. Don't let your guard down. Keep your head up. Stay on the alert, knowing again that your enemy is what? Prowling around like a roaring lion. This is a lifelong battle. 
It never ends. It might look different in certain seasons of life as you grow in maturity, as you find new ways to fight sin in your maturity, but don't ever fall into the trap of believing this side of glory that some individual skirmish that you had with sin that you successfully fought and defeated means it'll never crop up again. Again, Owen says, let no man think to kill sin with few easy or gentle strokes. He who has once smitten a serpent, if he does not follow on his blow until he is slain, may regret that he ever began the quarrel. And so will he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to death. We haven't even finished one verse yet. But there is this one massive question that's hanging out there. A question I have to ask all of you to reflect upon and pray through over the coming week. Are you mortifying your sin? Are you intentionally and consciously with the Spirit's help seeking to put your sin to death? Or instead, are you deceived into thinking that that Jesus is just a cheap ticket to heaven? And once that ticket is punched, or so you think, that you can just go on living however you please. Don't deceive yourselves. 1 John 3, 9 says, no one who is born of God practices sin. And the text that we've just looked at makes clear that we are as Christians, because we're Christians, called to be putting our sin to death. Because we have died with Christ, we should be doing what's mentioned here in verse five, considering the members of our earthly body is dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. I need to move us along. We've looked at the command. Verse five, I told you we'd spend most of our time there. Now in verse six is the consequence. Verse six, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Now Paul here starts with this contrastive statement. For it is because of these things. What things, Paul? The things he mentioned back in verse five. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. And then he continues, verse six, It's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. This is standard warning language from Paul. In fact, when we did that little tour of the various lists that he gave, in each one of those, he also gives a warning just like we see here. Now, who are the sons of disobedience? Simply put, sons of disobedience means the unbeliever. Those who reject God, those who reject Christ, those who reject the gospel, those who are dead in their sins. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 puts it this way, linking deadness and sin with being a son of disobedience. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of this spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The unbeliever, the one who is opposed to God, dead in their sin, as it says here in Ephesians 2, 1, also faces the eternal wrath of God. The wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. By the way, if sin is an unpopular topic in churches today, I think the wrath of God must be a close second. You hear it all the time. My God is a a God of love. Uh, To me, God would never inflict punishment. My God would never judge. And of course, who you think God is and who I think God is, our opinions about God ultimately have zero relevance What is of chief importance is what God has said about himself, how he has revealed who he actually is. And God has most certainly revealed 
himself as being a God who, as an extension of his righteousness and as an extension of his holiness and as an extension of his love, specifically his love for his own justice, he's a God of wrath. His eyes, Habakkuk 1.13 says, are too pure to approve evil. And he cannot look on wickedness with favor. He's a God, Psalm 5.5, who hates all who do iniquity. He's a God, Psalm 7.11, who is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation, anger, every day. You would have to do some pretty incredible linguistic gymnastics to get around those passages and claim that God is not a God of wrath. And how does God display his wrath? Well, there's really two ways to think about it. One is that the wrath of God, we know, hovers over the unbeliever today in their present condition. John 3, 36 says, he who believes in the son, these are the words of our Lord, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Or Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and an unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So there's present day wrath that is, that is hovering over the unbeliever today. But we also know as we read through the rest of the scriptures that there are coming days, future events where God's wrath will be poured out in full measure on the unbeliever. We know of the bowls of judgment that come about in the days of of tribulation in the book of Revelation. Uh, We know that final judgment, future judgment, is coming at the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes on the clouds and is wielding a sword. We know that that judgment, future judgment, is coming at that day known as the great white throne judgment, which we see in Revelation chapter 20, where it says, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Getting back to Colossians 3, the point Paul is making here is that for unbelievers today, verse 6, those who are sons of disobedience, the wrath of God already hangs ominously over them. And if you're an unbeliever today, you need to know that the wrath of God hangs ominously over your head like a sword of Damocles today. But there is coming a day where God's wrath will be meted out in its full measure on all unbelief and wickedness in this world. The heavens seem to be silent right now. And the unbeliever grows increasingly bold in in flaunting and philandering and sinning and, and thumbing his nose at God for now. But God is patient. and does not desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And importantly, God will not be mocked. Paul is making another point here in verse six. As he's writing to the Colossians, he's saying that to the unbelievers there, the sons of disobedience, they're acting as one would expect. Unbelievers are acting in immorality and impurity and with passion and evil desire and greed. They're doing what unbelievers do, what unrepentant sinners do. You know what I know what, what unrepentant sinners do? They sin with lack of repentance. That's what they do. But, but you, Paul is saying here, something different happened to you, which makes you different And now you're to act in a different manner. And that takes us to our third point this morning. If you're a note taker, here's our heading. It's the contrast, verse seven. And in them, it says, meaning those evil deeds, you also once walked when you were living in them. We won't spend too much time here, both for the sake of time, but also because it's such a simple point. But Paul here is making his point by way of contrast. 
In verse 5, we see this command to believers to put their sin to death. In verse 6, we see this temporary shifting of the focus to non-believers and them doing what non-believers do, which is to sin habitually. And then we go back to verse 7. The camera shifts back to the believer, the Colossian Christians here. And Paul is simply reminding them that though they once indulged in those various sins listed out there in verse 5, because God, by his grace, rescued them, Colossians 1.13, from the domain of darkness. They no longer live in that old dark domain from which they were rescued, and they were no longer to walk in the darkness. That's summarized well elsewhere by Paul in Ephesians 5.8, where he says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And then he goes on to say, So walk as children in light. Are you walking as a child of light here this morning? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, are you walking as a child of light? Are you doing what 1 John 2, 6 commands the believer to do, to walk as he walked, as Jesus walked? Are you doing what Paul says elsewhere over in Galatians 5, 25 to the believer? Are you walking by the Spirit? One of the ways that you'll know that you are that you're walking as a child of light, that you're walking as he walked, that you're walking in the spirit is that you have a consistent track record of continuously putting sin to death, which really has been the entire point of this passage, that importance for the believer of sending sin packing, sending sin on its death march as it walks off the plank and plunges deep into the sea. Now, I just have to say, If you're here as an unbeliever this morning, whether by your own admission or by deception, what I don't want you to hear as you leave this place is that, oh great, I just need to stop being immoral. I just need to stop being impure. I need to stop, I need to curb my passions. I need to look at my greed and that'll make me right with a holy God. It doesn't work that way. Christianity is not a works-based religion. It's not a works-based faith All of Christianity is all about the fact that it has already been done for you. If you simply acknowledge that you can't do it, if you simply acknowledge that it has been done for you, that your sin debt was nailed to the cross, the cross of Calvary, Jesus took nails for you and bled for you and died for you. If you will trust in him and what he did, you can have eternal life. You can be saved. You can walk in the manner that Christians are called to walk. What we've been having this morning has been a family conversation. One Christian speaking to other Christians. But if you're not a Christian, don't be deceived. Don't think that you can just kind of will your way or work your way or become a better version of your old self and pull the wool over God's eyes and he'll let you in. You must trust in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. You must believe in Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross specifically to have your sin debt expunged to have eternal life secured and to enjoy the glories of heaven. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for your clear word, your perfect word, your sure word, which guides believers for all generations. Thank you as we've worked through this text. It's a hard text. It's a convicting text. It pinches us where we in our flesh don't want to be pinched but it's a necessary text, an important text. And I do pray for the believers here as they leave here, they would be reminded that with the Spirit's help, this can be done. 
precisely because we are children of God, we can fight sin and we can put sin to death. But for unbelievers here, I do pray that they would see how hopeless their state is, how they can't work their way or earn their way or better themselves toward heaven, but that Christ is the only way. Trusting in his finished work is the only way. I do pray that there would be some here who would be willing to acknowledge that and be saved. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for salvation that's been purchased through him. May we seek to honor him throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.